Talking Kong, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, Episode 3, James Tynan IV. Welcome along to Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. My name's Leonard Sultana. I have my tea. I have a great guest who I'm going to bring on very shortly indeed, but just wanted to say thank you very much indeed to everyone who has uh, joined in and everyone who's been watching all our incidental episodes as well. Um, we had a cracking show um, a couple of days ago uh, in the middle of the week where we talked to Jeff Trexler, who's the new interim director of the Comic Book Legal Defence Fund. It was probably the heaviest and most intense episode we've done on this particular show. But for me, it was an important conversation to have. Um, it's about the past, the present and the future of the CBLDF. I would really encourage you to go back and check out that episode because uh, there was some big stuff in there. And um, Jeff gave some encouraging noises. I mean, the man's a lawyer. Yes, but that's the way it works. Um, I, I think more he came coming at it more as a fan. So he's certainly someone to listen to, and I'm, I'm wishing all the best for the uh, for the organisation. Um, we also had um, uh, we've had some great incidental episodes. Some more coming up as well. Mike Hawthorne is going to be uh, on the guest uh, on uh, next Saturday's show, and then tomorrow we're going to be talking to uh, the guys behind uh, a Kickstarter, which I'm very excited about. Stephen Mooney and also Declan Shelby, who's doing one of the backup stories for it. We're going to be talking to those two. Um, uh, about uh, a, a cracking um, Kickstarter. That's going to be 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. That's tomorrow uh, on Bank Holiday Monday. Hopefully they haven't <laughs> realised that it is a Bank Holiday Monday and they are still going to be available. But that's going to be uh, on tomorrow's show. Do join us for that. Right, we've got people in the uh, the chat already. Uh, they're all uh, lining up and they're wondering where the hell's the guest? Come on, this is the. You don't want to hear me. You want to hear the, the guest. You want to talk to uh, uh, James Tinnan uh, the fourth. Hello there, James. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. What is the pronunciation of your surname, please? It is Tynan. Tynan. Okay. <laughs> you see, this is it's, it's the I and the O, and it. Yeah, it oh yeah. Probably... No, no, no. It's the 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 classic Irish spelling would be more T Y N A N, and my family still pronounces it that way, but it hasn't been spelled <laughs> that way in about two hundred years. So, I've been watching a number of live streams just to kind of get my head around a couple of interviews with you, and not one of them had a consistent way of uh, pronunciation <laughs> of your surname. It's, <laughs> so uh, it's something it kind of... that. It's something that I rarely like. I I never correct people about it. If they <laughs> ask, I will provide the correct answer. But it's not something that I like. You know, the name is not spelled the way it's pronounced. So it's like I, it is unfair of me to expect people to know how to pronounce it. <laughs> as somebody who has Leonard as his first name, and there's an O in there for God's sake. Yeah, I, I yeah, <laughs> I, I I have my a fair share of those, but. Uh, Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Um, I've been starting this run of uh, Talking Con uh, by asking three questions. And I'm going to start with question number one. What is your brew of choice? Do you have a beverage to hand? Do you have yourself a cup of tea today? Uh, I have a can of coffee. Oh, oh there <laughs> we go. You know, the my, my lazy cup of coffee in the morning that I don't have to, you know, put anything on the stove, but still injects the caffeine I need directly into my brain. 
Well, heaven knows you're going to need it um, because uh, <laughs> we'll get into time management in a minute. Then I, the second question I've been asking is, uh, what was your first convention? Uh, what can you remember uh, the, the first one you went to? And did you go as a pro or did you go as a fan? So I was definitely a fan and it wasn't fully a comic convention, but uh, Gen Con, a big gaming convention, used to, used to run out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is where I grew up and uh before it moved to indianapolis but uh, so you know when i was in middle school you know roughly i would say about 12 13 years old i would go with friends to you know get manga and anime on vhs tapes and you know like and all of that and there was a small comics component but it was it was it was relatively small the first like real comic convention I went to would have been Wizard World Chicago down in the the Rosemont Convention Center, which I would have gone to while I was in high school uh, with some of my friends. And I remember I saw, you know, it was there were Marvel panels with Mark Millar at that time, so it's like that that roughly that yeah. era. Yeah, that's pretty so, cool. Yeah. Uh, and the other question I've been asking is also, has there been a wobbly knees moment with someone you've met at a convention? Uh, either a, a peer or an idol or someone whose work that you've admired. Oh, I yeah. honestly, it's all of them. Like it's it's something that I've never stopped being a little like when I when I am given an opportunity to meet like someone who is a hero of mine. Sometimes I'm just like I'm not sure I can handle this in this moment. I remember there was one crazy San Diego, you know, five years back or so. It was Jim Lee's birthday, and Scott Snyder had been invited to his party up in the, you know, up, up in the hotel suite. Uh, and but Scott wanted to go down and see his friends in the bars, and Jim basically dared him. It's like get everyone in the bar, bring them back up to the party. <laughs> and so Scott just like Scott was like, I'm gonna do it. And so he went and gathered a bunch of us, and then went up to the party. And so there were a bunch of like very like you know I at that point I was like working on Batman Eternal or something like that I was I was not a you know the <laughs> I wasn't really a name by any means but it was and then there was in a corner like Scott was having a conversation with Jeff Johns and Grant Morrison and it was just like and I didn't know like anyone at the party other than Scott. So it was just like, I'm going to go have a cigarette on the balcony and like, because I, I can't, I can't go over off into that, uh, <laughs> that corner. But yeah, so it was, uh, that, that was definitely a, uh, <laughs> that was, that was definitely like one of the most like, oh my God moments. And I did get to meet Grant Morrison. I hope I did not make a fool of myself, but I doubt I made it much of an impression either way in that moment. I, I, I've, I've managed to blag my way into a couple of uh, comic artists and comic writers' parties, and I've ended up just being sort of like super glued to the wall. I've just been so kind of, I don't know, I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to, not only that, but I also am not, no, I'm never really sure about what on earth I'm supposed to say uh, in terms of just having a conversation uh, without, like you say, coming off a little bit, you know, you don't know what on earth to do and uh, say in those <laughs> moments, but um also, I can imagine that there's that reverse element as well when people do uh, meet you at conventions. Uh, can you talk about any favourite fan interactions, those uh, those moments when people come up and... Uh, well, how often do you get recognised at a convention? Um, more than more than I used to. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's the benefit of being a 
especially when I have my full beard going and, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy. So it's something that when I'm walking, you know, walking down the aisle, it's like, you know, if they've seen me up on a panel, they're going to notice me on the floor. So I do try to keep like Sharpies in my pocket when I walk around the show floor now. The, the strangest encounter that I've ever had, is, and it was weirdly very early on in my career, this was back when I was like on talent, uh, oh. was a, a teenage boy when I, like I was living in New York in the in the Lower East Side at that time. And like a teenage boy basically followed me into a grocery store and then asked me, are you James Tynan? And then I said, yes. And it was like, I love your work. And then he ran out of the grocery store. <laughs> and it was just like that. That was to this day. That hasn't been topped. And that happened like in 2014. So it's like it is it's strange that 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 moment hasn't really been uh, surpassed. But like at conventions there, you know, it, it's always really, really powerful when you see someone who's who the work really matters for, like particularly, you know, I, because I write a lot about with, with queer characters and I've, I've spoken a lot about, you know, my journey as a queer person, like it's something that, you know, when, when someone has seen themselves in my work and they bring it up to me and it, and you can see how much it matters to them, that is extraordinarily powerful. I can imagine. And then sometimes the like in, when I went to Mexico, that someone brought me this, and I love it. His creepy eyes stare at me all day, and uh, this is the he. This is this is my friend. He's been, you know, guarding me for the last last couple of years. Has that been the kind of the totem that's been? Oh yeah, <laughs> helping you out over the, because. I, I know that there's going to be plenty of people that's going to be asking questions. By all means, guys, uh, if you have anything that you want to uh, put to uh, to James, uh, we've got plenty of people who are jumping in. We've got Leanne D saying hello. Michael Pease joining us. Sarita Pease, hello. Karen Session, good afternoon from New York. A pleasure to have uh, everyone joining us. We've also got Jackson Matterhorn watching. Is this live? Yes, it is. We are live now. So uh, any questions you have for uh, James, do uh, dive in. By all means, I'm counting on you lot for the Batman questions. Uh, because uh, we were talking just prior before we came on. Yes, I've been reading Detective. Yes, I've been reading uh, Joker War. Yes, I've been reading a number of the uh, the core uh, Batman titles. But it's certainly the uh, the stuff you've been doing for Boom, the stuff you've been doing for Image, which has absolutely been rocking my world. Um, so, um, you, everyone, this is where you have to fill in the gaps when it comes to the Batman questions. <laughs> Listen, I mean, I'm I'm the kind of guy that when when they did Final Crisis and they buried Bruce Wayne, I'm the one that wanted Bruce in the ground to stay there. I didn't <laughs> I didn't want Bruce back. I wanted Dick Grayson to be Batman from now onwards. I wanted the evolution of the the, the character. Yeah. Um, when it comes to your stories, it's been interesting to see how you very much are about family. Um, across yeah. mo across all your titles, and you you don't just um, treat the Bat family with kid gloves. It's very much a case of you you love these characters uh, intently. There's it's almost you don't know if you can correct me on this whether you enjoy interacting and writing for the family more than Batman himself and uh, Bruce Wayne. Is, would that be a I, fair comment? I think there is definitely some truth in, to that, and I think that part of it is like a very simple thing. I I enjoy writing team books and I enjoy writing books with big casts of characters and like Batman can be such a solitary character but I always even on a book 
that's meant to have like a singular protagonist, I still need to build a huge supporting cast out around them. So, you know, in in my Detective Comics run, it was building around the Bat family and the Bat family are my favorite characters in all of superheroes. Uh, and that's why, you know, I, I wrote about them for 50 issues and I absolutely love all of those characters. And uh, now on Batman, I'm bringing in a lot of the villain characters and I'm creating a lot of new villain characters because they are Bruce's other family. And that's the angle that I have I, I really, really enjoy is he has his own relationship uh, with with each of them, even characters like Penguin and the Riddler. There's a familiarity there because they've been doing this for so long. <laughs> Um, so it's just, I, honestly, that's something that I really enjoy tapping into, uh, and I do like leaning on the characters around him. And, you know, I've been trying to sort of, like, my detective run very much, that was me almost trying to do, you know, 70s, 80s, like, Claremont X-Men, like, with the Bat family. Yes. And, like, and weirdly what I'm doing now in Batman, I didn't even think about this until later, is what I'm doing now on uh, on the main Batman title is I'm trying to do 1990s X-Men with the <laughs> with Batman and the Bat villains and uh you know it's 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 really like a lot of it is just trying to challenge myself and trying to go into you know new places with uh you know with this universe that I've been working in and around since I started in comics 8 years ago yeah it must be such a challenge uh to write Batman and Bruce Wayne, because of that almost desire by the audience that they do want, don't want him to change. They want that stoic. Um, I mean, there's certainly ways that you can come at the character from uh, the giant penny um, character, <laughs> the uh, the fantastical in terms of uh, uh, dark metal and uh, that the, the 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 fantastical approach. I mean, I'm I'm a big when I saw the trailer for The Batman, by the way, I mean, I was absolutely blown away that I'm actually going to be seeing a Dark Knight detective because that's yeah. that's my Batman. So there's ways to approach the character, but certainly that core, the tenants, as it were, of the actual character, the way that yeah. you and um, Scott and various other writers have come at it, have, certainly in the last, say, 10 years, have been from the, uh, the uh, perspective of the family and of the villains and kind of circling around Batman, if you could talk about that for a bit. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, honestly, it's always been about, you know, what is the fresh angle in? And the and the truth is, is that a lot of ground has been covered. And this was something that I was talking to Scott about uh, when I was first taking on the title, is when he was stepping on to Batman back in, you know, or, or even when he started on Detective Comics in 2010, that at that moment, uh, in the previous decade, there had only been two Batman movies. There had been, uh, I think, one Batman animated movie. And there had been uh, I, the first Arkham Asylum game had come out. And that was that was it. That was the only Batman media like surrounding it. In the following 10 years, there have been, I, and I counted, uh, they're between feature animated films that feature Batman as a character and the direct-to-video like animated series. There have been about 48 different Batman feature films. There have been a dozen, like a, so many TV shows, like entire TV shows like Gotham and, and then Batman showing up on other TV shows and, and then a whole host of video games that feature Batman or star Batman. And it's one of those things where like, Time and time again, you sort of see all of these different facets and all of these different ways into his head. 
which honestly, like, even, you know, even though it's something that I know uh, fans are still a little, you know, still figuring out how they feel about it. But uh, when when I first took on the job, it was right after the we all found out that Alfred was dead and he was actually going to be dead. And it was like that honestly was one of the things that made me most interested to take this job, because it's one of those things where this is now an era of Batman that does not like in the, in the modern era, there has not been a moment that he hasn't had Alfred. Like Alfred's like gotten angry and walked out on him before. And like, there've been little moments where they separate, but uh, seeing Bruce have to approach the, the entire Batman mythos in Gotham city without Alfred at, at his side is, is an opportunity for a really interesting story. So that was one of the things that, that really, you know, like dragged me into it. Um, what was the first thoughts in your head when uh, they approached <laughs> you to take on Batman? I mean, honestly, it's, it's, I've, I've wanted this gig for a long time. So when when I knew that they were they were looking, I was like, hey, I, I, <laughs> like, I want to throw my hat in the ring. And, you know, thankfully they went for it. And, you know, then especially once Ben Abernathy came in as the Batman group editor towards the end of last year. He and I were really simpatico about uh, what we saw as the potential of the title uh, to do new things that were that would spin away from uh, some of the stuff that was being done with the character in other arenas. You know how to how to make this a book that everyone was excited to read two times a month. And uh, thankfully, you know, it looks like uh, effectively we seem to have doubled the sales of Batman between my first issue and the first issue of Joker War. So I am. I'm feeling good about it. <laughs> well, I mean, congratulations on Joker War, by the way. Thank you. Uh, it is a stunning book. I got to ask about Punchline. Uh, yeah. If anything, because, you, 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 like you say, adding to uh, uh, the Batman mythos. And for myself, when I first heard about um, the character, all I could think was that this is a way, perhaps, of redressing some of the balance when it comes to Harley Quinn, because Harley Quinn has been appropriated by pop culture. Um, yeah. that uh, going from a real threat to, I mean, well, okay, she can still hold her own. She's still a threat, but right. she's been appropriated by pop culture. We've got the cartoon, we've got rafts of cosplayers, and some of that bite has been taken out of the character. Not so with Punchline. Punchline <laughs> is a nasty piece of work. Um, what was your take on creating that character and um, what was the reaction from DC when you want, said that you wanted to do it? I mean, honestly, it was, it was a character created out of necessity, uh, which is one of the things that I, like, I wish I had this like ingenious formula of how I did it, but it was, <laughs> uh, it, it was pretty basic. It was something that I knew that I was, I knew I was going to be building towards a Joker, a big Joker story this summer. That was something that top down the company wanted and was just like, James, you were going to deliver a big Joker story. Uh, <laughs> and that's what it, what it's, what, it, what all of this is going to build to. And so I knew that was happening about six months prior. I had pitched something uh, to the offices, which was basically uh, an idea for a kind of next gen Joker book. And it was like, it was something a little continuity neutral uh, it was going to be off on the side, but it, like, and it never went anywhere. But the pitch was essentially the idea of this young man who got hit hands of the audio, like uh, Joker's sessions in Arkham, and then was slowly like radicalizing himself into become 
you know, a new Joker. Like he be he fell in love with the ide- ideology and it started twisting him. And then this like nice upstanding kid starts becoming this very dark, scary character and the people around him need to save him. So I had that, I had that initial pay and then I get the job on Batman. And it's like that pitch is gone because I don't have time to write all those books. Uh, but it can, was, I, can I ask? Can I ask when that pitch was? Because that sounds very timely. To be fair, it, it would have been the it would have been around last summer. Um, yeah. Okay. You know, so that's, yeah, that sounds it, about it, right. Not that, not that far. Not that long ago. Um, <laughs> but it was it was something that I, I started having that conversation about about a character, and then I, I started talking about doing the Joker story, what would eventually become Joker War in the main Batman title. We, what I started realizing, it, the thing I want to do differently than how Tom approached the Joker and how Scott approached the Joker is uh, we haven't seen Joker really operate with a gang in a long time. Like, Joker has been a very solitary character. We haven't seen him have all of the, you know, the clowns around him uh, to, you know, to really wreak some havoc. And so I knew I wanted Joker at the head of a Joker gang. Uh, and I knew for that because Joker's not going to manage all of the little aspects of running a gang I knew new needed a number two character so that's when I started drawing the connection over I need a number two character I have this raw idea from back in the summer and then uh two things happened very quickly uh, like around December of last year and it was that Tony Daniel drew a cover uh for I forget which issue right off the top of my head uh but the cover had Harley Quinn on and I had already asked, could I use Harley Quinn in the Batman run? And I was told Harley Quinn's a part of the Suicide Squad book with like, you know, we don't we don't want to, you know, pull her in over here. And I was like, OK, OK, that's fine. But then Tony Daniel draws the this cover and Harley's on it. And it's just like, OK, I know a big thing internally right now is that you guys want to make sure that what's on the cover reflects what's in the book. This means, can I please have Harley Quinn? And once, and then, uh, and then once they gave me Harley Quinn, I was like, okay, now I have Harley Quinn as a part of this story, and I need who used to be the Joker's number two, and I'm going to be creating a new number two for Joker. So that means that this new number two essentially needs to be the antithesis of Harley. Like that, that's where that original dynamic was. It's just like if we're doing a like Betty and Veronica style thing that like. <laughs> Harley is Betty, punchline is Veronica. If it's the angel and devil on the shoulder, it's Harley's the angel on the Joker's shoulder, punchline's the devil on his shoulder. And it's just like it was building out that dichotomy. And then the other thing that happened right at that moment is we finally, you know, figured out that Jorge Jimenez was going to be coming on to do a substantial amount of the, the issues of Batman in this next year. So it was like, okay, we have Jorge Jimenez, and Jorge can't start drawing pages yet, because he's still wrapping up Justice League, but he can design some new characters. So we give him the designs for the designer and for punchline. And he turns in the punchline design, and it is just like, okay, this is very exciting. And, you know, that gets run up the ladder and all of that. And, you know, it's one of those things where I wasn't getting a lot of press right when I started on uh, I started on Batman, so I basically kind of took it into my own hands and uh, started releasing my newsletter. You know, especially, you know, selfishly, I knew I was going to be launching a bunch of independent work over the course of 2020. I wanted to make sure that the people who were coming for news about Batman were also getting news about something is killing the children, Department of Truth, Wind, etc. 
So it's one of those things where it's like it was all, you know, part of one thing. But then I threw the punchline design up on that newsletter with permission from DC and all of that. But they didn't think that that was a news story because I had introduced (laughs) characters before. And then everything went freaking crazy. And uh, that was... You know, just within a week, we were seeing cosplay and fan art. The fandom corners of the internet were already, like, acting in the manner of Punchline. A character would not appear in a single panel. And it was just like, okay, I think we've hit we've hit a nerve here. And <laughs> that is, uh, that's incredibly exciting. What? That was a big answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's it's a hell of an answer because... Uh, we've, we've seen a kind of... I mean, you talked about the dichotomy between uh, the two characters, especially with Harley on one side. And we, we saw it with um, uh, White Knight, um, with that kind of... The, the two Harleys going at it. But Punchline's, like I say, a different animal. And um, it's in, it, like, it's interesting, like you say, the, the fact that people have latched on to a female baddie, uh, which yeah. I, mean, I think those are still quite rare. Uh, I, yeah. We've In the last couple of years, we've seen this kind of... Anti-hero, the, the the swapping over of a whole roster of um, uh, female baddies from across yeah. comics, and th- th- there's been this kind of drive to redeem a lot of characters. Whereas, yeah. I, I can't see that happening for Punchline anytime soon. Uh, it, <laughs> in, I, I think we'll talk quickly about how 2020 has affected comics and the way that we're perceiving our characters. Um, I mean, you're talking there about a lot of. Uh, time management for artists and creators and trying to get people into to place. How has that been for 2020 for yourself during pandemic, during lockdown with the, the, the closing of uh, DC for that period of time? How did, how did 2020 affect you and wanting to get this story out? Uh, honestly, it's interesting. It's one of those things. None of my projects uh, were ever put on pause, but there was this strange moment where like basically for two months, we had no idea when comics were coming effectively. So I was I was making headway further and further into Joker War without having, you know, <laughs> without knowing when that was going to come out and like what was going to come next. And there were all of these huge questions that were really, really, you know, existential questions about the run that... Um, <laughs> There, there are elements to this that I'll be able to talk to more in a year or two. But <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's been really fascinating. And I, it allowed me to sit down and sort of see all of Joker War right in front of me, of, you know, almost all at once. Like I had, I, had basic, I had written issue 100 before issue 95 came out in stores. And it's working double ship, that's very rare. Like, I might occasionally be working on an issue super far ahead, but it's it's rare that I, I get, like, something whole in front of me. And, you know, it, and it is, it's a sort of, it's still a gonzo, loud kind of story. It's This isn't me trying to do something, like, something very polished and, like, intricate and all of that. This is me trying to get at a kind of id um, that I'm, I'm really trying to to tap into to make for and especially playing off of Jorge's art uh, just create this Gotham that is deeply fascinating to look at with deeply fascinating and colorful characters um, that that is that feels like a superhero book like and that is something that you know I, I've, I have been thinking a lot about in quarantine and all of that is how to sort of make every 
thing I'm doing in and of itself more of what it is in and of itself, if that makes any sense. It's like a superhero comic. I'm not like, especially like in a world where I'm doing books like Department of Truth and Something is Killing the Children and all of that. When I'm doing a superhero comic, I'm not trying to do a superhero comic that is like a secretly another type of thing. Like I'm not trying to do a, I'm not trying to do a vertigo book or an image book or what have you as like baked in as a, you know, with a secret Batman book, like secretly as a Batman. This is me trying to be like, here are all of these amazing toys and here are some potential for some new toys. And I want to basically make a Batman story that every single page of is like feels kind of electric and makes you want to read the next page. And it's, it's, it's very, it's strange because it's a very different animal than what I did on detective comics and, you know, time, you know, which one people like really respond to uh, more, but it's one of those things where it's, it's been a really fascinating journey because it's the more independent work I do, the more, free I feel to just have fun uh, with the superhero work. Not in a way that I think diminishes the superhero work, but might actually like tap closer into what like people want out of a superhero comic. And like, you know, that, that sounds a little pompous, but that's no, the not, not, not at all. I mean, if, if anything, the reason why I asked the question is because I think a lot of people are looking at their heroes and they're looking at, because it's not just pandemic, um, Black Lives Matter, uh, the way that um, uh, we are responding to uh, people in uniform, our heroes, um, I think that's evolved over 2020 and it's happened on a dime. And I'm, yeah. I'm really curious how that's going to affect comics and superhero comics moving forward. Um, we'll get into some other stuff as well um, in a second, but we do have a couple of comments and questions that have come in uh, feed. We've got Solistra Smeg asking uh, more this is a bigger question. This is a whole other ball game. Uh, do you ever get uh, hate mail from far right or super religious groups? And if so, what group is the worst? Oh boy! Wow. Um, if you want to yeah. avoid that one, you're more than welcome. I mean, I I will say I have friends who have uh, you know been put through the ringer by some of those groups, and I've been incredibly lucky that you know there'll be occasional flare ups where people. Uh, you know, have a particular issue with uh, that, you know, they have a, they feel like they need me to, to find out about. Uh, but honestly, the, the groups that I tend to piss off more than anything are the uh, the various fandoms connected to the Bat Batman and the Batman, um, who, like, different camps within those groups either, like, love me or hate me or, you know, want to, like, spam my feed one day or all of that. But it could be, I used to run a Tim Drake fan Tumblr back <laughs> when I was in college. So it's one of those things where it's like, I understand where you're coming from and I respect where you're coming from. I am not going to engage with any of this because I know that that is a losing battle. But I absolutely respect, like, you know, well, I mean, you what, feeling what, what, this strongly about it. What's yeah. the phrase? Um, um... Well, there's nothing worse than being ignored. Uh, if you're if you're creating something, whatever way it's uh, inspiring passion, either um, vitriolic or uh, positive, at least you're creating something which is generating that uh, yeah. kind of uh, yeah. I, I, I get that. Uh, Into the blue, Mister. Um, it seemed like you had a lot of fun working on the three Batman Teenage Mutant Ninja uh, Turtle series. Uh, what? How was it working with Freddie Williams? Oh yeah, I've go. got I've go. got the animated movie they made on it, which you should all pick up because they did a very good job adapting it. Um, 
honestly, the, working on that whole series with Freddie was one of the the highlights of my entire career. And then especially working on volume three of that and actually getting to work with Kevin Eastman, like on art internally was like that blew my mind, like absolutely blew my mind. Uh, I think if, you know, if I was confident, I knew where it was somewhere behind me. Uh, Kevin Eastman actually sent me one of the pages he and Freddie worked on together and they were like actually like swapping physical art, like inking, you know, both of them like inking and drawing on the same page uh, for, for parts of volume three, which is just absolutely incredible. But I love, I love the whole TMNT uh, mythology. I'm really happy I was able to play with it as much as we did. Um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm exceptionally proud of those three volumes. And I hope at some point, they release like a nice omnibus of it. Like that would make me very happy. That would be nice. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, reading Kevin Eastman's new uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh book, yeah, because uh, that looks fascinating. It kind of lightens uh, Dark Knight Returns kind of yeah. take on the universe. So that's rather cool. What 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 have you been reading over the course of pandemic? I mean, like say you had that. Uh, two-month period where you weren't too sure when books were going to be coming out. And when I've been speaking to creators over the course of the summer, it's either gone two ways. It's either been people who have been absolutely voraciously uh, taking in everything new, everything that's kind of just Kickstarters, anything kind of just being created in, in the periphery somewhere, something on Tumblr somewhere, just anything new, or they've been going all the way kind of comfort food and watching like, <laughs> friends for days on end what was what was your um pandemic diet as it were so uh my my partner sam uh has always has always lived a bit more in the indie alternative side of comics uh you know more the fantagraphics drawn in quarterly that side of the business and so there is this we have this incredible bookshelf where i had only read some of the highlights of that of that whole bookshelf and basically, I sat down and it was just like, you know what? I am going to read everything. <laughs> um, and, you know, honestly, it, it was incredibly ex inspiring because mixed in with that, it was a lot of books that I had been meaning to read um, from more modern. Uh, like, but it's, you know, just reading through the entire like body of work of Adrian Tomine, who I had read bits and pieces of before, but just like literally starting with optic like up to today um you know i i j literally just read his new book last night and it's just like this incredibly incredibly powerful work and then on top in like the i would say that the most important thing that i finally sat down and read uh over this whole break was uh from hell and from hell is something wow. that i had owned since i was 16 years old and it's something that i like deliberately because I was a pretentious like shit, uh, wanted to basically have a great Alan Moore comic that I had never read sitting on my shelf for a rainy day for when I needed it. And it was something that I, I kept to that. Like uh, the volume sitting on the shelf had followed me from like four different apartments and like and more than four apartments, like uh, across the four different cities. Like it, it has been with me for a long time, but I finally sat down with it. And Shocker is one of the best comics ever written or drawn. 
and yeah. it like supercharged my brain uh like that uh the work of tilly walden i read like every book that she's done uh, then like the work of adrian tomine uh upgrade soul by ezra clayton miller was another big favorite of mine uh, and then I, I read a whole lot of uh, Neo Asano's uh, Goodnight Poon Poon, uh, which is a manga series that, that goes to some really dark emotional places. And it's just like all of those things like together kind of help. I don't know. It's like it, it, it like stuck a lightning rod into my head a little bit because for one, it was just a really it's really important to sort of remember sometimes that we've created all of these little like barriers between the different corners of the comics industry to the point that they feel like wholly different industries and sometimes wholly different mediums like the the YA book market side of comics and the indie alternative fantagraphic side of comics and the the like superhero direct market and even like image side of comics uh, they, do, you... they do have their own kind of like separate subgenre. There's a little yeah yeah. In you go into a comic book shop now, it's almost like there is it's the director market and then there's image. It kind yeah. of like has its own. And and it's just it's incredibly like important every now to remember like oh this is actually what the the entire breadth of the medium is like can do. And it's just like it's incredibly inspiring. And it's something that, like, definitely has pushed me in a lot of ways in terms of how I want to approach uh, what I'm doing, like, moving forward. And it's just, like, how, what what kind of work am I interested in doing and, and putting out into the world? Like, it's, you know, because I, I think I've said publicly a few times, I don't know how much longer, uh, you know, I'm staying on Batman as long as I can stay on Batman. <laughs> But once I'm done there, I'm, I'm I think I might want to take a break from superheroes from like, honestly, I want to I want to try to try a few things and sure. uh, see if uh, see how they work. And like and it's exciting. I like experimenting. I like challenging myself. I like seeing if I can pull something off. So I find it I find it interesting with the the titles you mentioned. Um, those are they're not simple concepts. They're ones that have taken a lot of detailing and a lot of planning and a core mythology uh, creation before a single um, keystroke was made on on a word processor. It was it's, yeah. it's something that has taken a lot of building and laying out before you actually move to the process. And that I can certainly talk to when it comes to um, wind and also. Uh, uh, Department of Truth, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, a couple of comments that are coming in, a couple of questions as well. Mark Abnett is asking a process question. Uh, pitching to publishers, what are your top tips for getting your pitch noticed and approved by Ed? Yeah. That's that's an interesting one, if anything, because, I mean, for yourself, it, I think it was more sheer energy for the, the project <laughs> than anything. I mean, it, if you can go to that. Yeah. I Like, at, at this point, I, you know, I have the benefit of, you know, now I have a bunch of relationships places, but it's the, you can always tell when you have a really exciting, like, core concept. And it, and it's the, when you have the great core concept and you are trying to, I'm trying to figure out the best way to, to approach this answer. Honestly, the most important thing to keep in mind is that your pitch document is the first creative document. Uh, that is something that I believe wholeheartedly. I actually wrote a whole piece about this for uh, panel by panel 
uh, the issue that's uh, that was centered on uh, something is killing the children. Like, honest, it, it's this it's the same job over and over and over, because like when you were writing a like a one page pitch document and that's that is a key thing. If you cannot explain your core concept in a single page, then like you are not going to be able to catch an editor's attention with it. That doesn't mean it can't like the the document behind the, the Department of Truth and all of that was a 20 page document I wrote. But that first page had all of the core pieces uh, that you needed to understand to like, oh, I grasp what this series is. And practice on your one pages. But then it's like you like be, and part of the reason that's important is like that's not only how you sell it to your editor. That's how you sell it to the reader. And that's how you sell it to retailers. Um, and actually, I, I mixed the order up. It's like first you sell it to your editor, then you re retailers and then you sell it to the reader. Like right now, I am in the process of like for Department of Truth, I'm selling it to the retailers right now. Because, you know, there's still one more week for the final before the final order cutoff for Department of Truth number one. And so I have one more week to get every retailer in, the, in my country and other countries to, like, order as many copies as I as I can get them to order. Because once that day passes, that those order numbers are set. And, you know, anything at that point uh, after that point will be like second printings and beyond. But it's just like you want you want the most right then. So it's just like it is it's simplifying uh, everything down to that first like exciting core concept that then you're going to need to be able to like wield and weaponize over and over and over again uh, to as you scale uh, in in your battle to listen into people's hands. So that's the that's the biggest thing that I have to say. And people editors can read your enthusiasm and they can read if you're trying to if you're tapping into something that's genuinely interesting to you or if you're just trying to, like, uh, you know, cash in on a trend. Like there, mm -hmm. there are always some people who feel like it was like how in, you know, after Lost ended, like for the next five years, everyone was trying to create like a ripoff of Lost on every different network. And, uh, but, but it wasn't. Like the next like big geek show wasn't or was it Game of Thrones or was there an interim show? I don't know, but it was like it was a few years later and it had nothing. It was nothing like Lost. Like so, it's just like it's one of those things. Don't just try to like tap into what like what seems hot at the moment. You need to be able to you tap into what you are most interested in at the moment, and you need to basically capture your enthusiasm in like a box and then like be like see i am a boundless source of enthusiasm for this idea <laughs> like i am going to sell this like with everything in my might and first i'm going to sell it to you and it's like there there is a bit of salesmanship to all of it fair enough i i also kind of like to touch the kind of like time management and how you have managed to tap into a number of uh, boxes and genres. Uh, certainly at the moment, uh, you've uh, got yourself a, a, a fair few things catching your attention at the moment. Uh, obviously, Department of Truth is foremost on your mind at the moment because that, like you say, is imminent. It's yeah. on the way. But um, if we can t balancing and spinning all of those plates, is it so you enjoy having the ability to kind of work on a project, work on that particular um, element of that, see if you can crack that particular nut on that particular... Uh, uh, section of whatever story that may be and then going okay i'm going to come back to you here's i'm going to now go to i'm going to go to wind i'm going to go to um uh children i'm going to go to 
Department of Truth, because there is, I mean, not only that, we've, we have yet to talk about um, your, uh, your sorry, crowdfunding. Yeah. Effort. So there's so much stuff that you've got going on. What, how do you approach um, time management and approaching those, all these different projects? Well, I don't sleep, so that, that helps. <laughs> um, there you go. That's a, a one answer. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, it's something that I struggle with. But I have the – it's one of those things where I am definitely – I like having a bunch of irons in the fire. I love – you know, and I also – I made a decision a couple of years ago. Uh, and this was something that I – it would have been – I'm trying to think what year it would. So yeah, it would have been San Diego comic-con 2018. And I basically was just like, you know what? I need to start moving away from like, at that point, every single book I was working on was a DC superhero type. Uh, I had, I had wrapped up the woods. I had wrapped up all of my pre, I think I, I think that year, a couple of backstagers one shots came out. But yeah. aside from that, there was no new creator owned work for me that year. Um, and I realized that it was just like there was not only was that having a negative impact on you know, my creativity, but it was also just like it was having a negative emotional impact just on me. I was feeling I was feeling like I was in a box and I was feeling that like. You know, working at a corporation like DC, there's always there's always internal politics. There's always like there are a million things that you know people that you 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 like stories you'll never hear about or not they wouldn't even be interesting to hear about that just like can ruin entire weeks because someone doesn't like how one panel looks on a page and then that changes the direction of four written issues and it's just like, and that what was supposed to plug into that. And it's just like all of those little things, all of those little frustrations. And it's like, I need to take a bit more control on this, but I also know that I don't like, I am not going to, I can't do that tomorrow. So I need to build towards it. So I basically uh, like that summer set in motion, a whole bunch of stuff. And surprisingly, one thing I start, I signed a three year contract to DC. And that was something <laughs> that was like, okay, this is, this is my timeline of what I can do uh, to do this. And I knew I, I had wind, I had something is killing the children. Uh, and I, and that was the summer that I initially pitched uh, Department of Truth uh, to what was then Vertigo. Um, and so that was, those were sort of the three core concepts. And I knew I wanted to get all three core concepts out there. Uh, it was that right before that New York Comic Con that I reached out to Martin Simmons, uh, who was still wrapping up uh, Friendo at that time, I believe, uh, or maybe it was the second season of Punk's Not Dead, but it was one one of those two. Uh, but it well, like, he's somebody else that spins a number of plates. <laughs> to be fair, yes, he is, and and it was just one of those things where it's like, okay, I'm going to set all of these things in motion. And then over the course of the next three years, they will start coming out and I will be able to do all of this stuff and start like pulling back a little bit from the superhero work. And, then, you know, last year, something crazy happens, which is I get the opportunity uh, to make a, a real push for the Batman title and then I get it. And then it's just like, oh, God, I have way too much work on my plate and I could in this moment put a put a pause on each of my my side projects but it's also this this is a tremendous opportunity 
I have the one of the biggest spotlights in all of comics on me. And I have all of I have these like big ideas that I'm very, very excited about that are about to start coming out in in the world. And it's just like I knew in that moment that I was just like, okay, this next year is going to be hard. Like it's going to be hard work to get it all done. But I can't I can't put the brakes on any of these projects. I need to make sure that they come out. And I need to make sure that they launch as strongly as they can. And it needs to be the best work that I've ever written. Um, and that was the, that was sort of the genesis of like where I'm at now. So a lot of it is like long-term planning, but then there's the little chaos element that always throws itself in, which is like, I didn't plan for, you know, creating a punchline. And now there's some like, and, and I'm not, and like I'm creating other new characters in and around Gotham where all of a sudden it's like, well, what if about doing this side one shot? What about doing this thing? And then that that adds on to my plate too. And then on top of it, it's like then over here and something is killing the children. Like we're approaching a scenario where there's a chance that issue eleven of something is killing the children might outsell issue one of something is killing the children. <laughs> and it's like that's incredible. So it's just like all of these things are happening, and I need to sort of keep all of these like engines in motion. And it's exhausting, but it's also exhilarating. And it's, uh, you know, in every each of my my titles right now has a very different feel and is a very different animal. And that's something that that is crucial. Um, you know, I need like it, I, it needs to feel like I'm scratching, like I'm stretching a different muscle sure. um, with everything I'm doing. And so the, the process of working on all of these projects feels like I'm getting, you know, a full body workout. Um <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's kind of how I, I think about it and approach it. I'm curious as to see how you would actually equate your the books that you do to your... Okay, so Batman's your cardio. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, wind is your legs. It's the, the energy. Okay, well, yeah. that's, a, yeah, that's yeah. a legs day. Okay, uh, I've no idea what you'd call something is killing the children. <laughs> what on earth you would call that? Um, oh, boy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean... I, I, yeah, it's like I said at the top of the show. I, it's definitely the uh, the creator-owned uh, titles which have absolutely been uh, rocking my world. It's been uh, something's killing the children. Obviously, incredibly well received. And also, I like the fact that you do acknowledge that you've got the Batman spotlight, but that light spills onto these other projects, and that raises them to the fore. And I think that's um, uh, interesting to uh, to talk about. When it comes to something is killing the children, I, I mean, I think the book that I equate it to when i describe it to people is is witches there is that real sense of a world that something has happened way before this story this is uh, an ecology this is it's it's not something that you are uh, just observing you are kind of seeing around the corner at something a lot bigger yeah. um, how much uh, when it comes to planning this i mean when we could talk about this for all of the uh, the titles you've mentioned when it comes to that, at least putting the uh, the time into creating the world before you actually uh, uh, launch the book, how um, um, detailing have you gone into into creating the mythology of these books before um, hitting page one? And once the books have started coming out, how has that mythology evolved? Uh, with something is killing the children. I mean, there's there's clearly some more stuff coming down the line. Um, there's going to be uh, all, all these various types of monsters on the way. 
but um, yeah, how much of that has been kind of nailed down or how much of that is something you are kind of learning as the story goes on? Well, I mean, so this is this is the interesting thing. Like when it comes to a book like Department of Truth, I had a like like I said, I had a 20 page document. I have something that outlines 15 core issues that like are the central myth arc of the story. And based on the success of, uh, of what feels, you know, knock on wood, but it seems like the first issue is going to go go over well. I think that that's going to be expanded by a couple of arcs, and we're we're going to bring in a few few more a few more elements. So all of that, like you know, I know effectively where the Department of Truth ends, and while some things are changing in and around as I'm writing it, like I'm still following. Uh, like as I write issue by issue, I'm still following roughly the the my outline of what I wrote back in 2018. Like I, there is still like a the central idea, like how I approach every issue changes, but the the core like here's a three sentence description of what happens in this that issue, those are still active. So that that is you know genuinely a very you know, it, it feels good because it's like, okay, this core idea still works. I'm not tearing it all up. Something is Killing the Children was a very different animal. Uh, originally, when I pitched it to Boom, it was a five-issue miniseries. And every single issue was going to be a standalone one-shot. And Erica Slaughter was going to be a very, is a kind of unknowable character who clearly represented this larger universe of monster hunters. But every single issue, she would sort of, she would arrive in a different town, fight a different monster and leave. It was basically the, the high concept was I wanted to do like an entire ish series that was like the, the standalone one shots in, in, in like Hellblazer or Sandman, where it's just like here, like, and like Sandman doing stories where, uh, where I shift away from the central POV of Erica and go into a random person and like let them tell the story. So that was that was sort of the initial idea. Uh, I started writing the first issue and I realized that that wasn't the comic. That wasn't this comic. Uh, I knew that this wasn't something that I was looking to resolve in one issue. I knew this was a longer story. So I reached out to my editor and I was just like, okay, I need all five issues to tell one story. So I'm changing that right off the bat. And then as I start as I start going from there, it was around issue three that is like, I need more than five issues. And it was just like, then you better hope that the first issue sells. And thankfully it did. Um, and I think that I, I benefited. I was incredibly lucky by for, with the, um, you know, the, the launch of, uh, well, the unannounced ending of The Walking Dead benefited something is killing the children tremendously. Like, <laughs> it, like, it, like seriously, because the retailers all over the country, uh, their top-selling horror comic was gone, and it was no longer a monthly sell. And that happened in July, I think, and yeah. September with something is killing the children was the next major horror launch uh, of of any, any like anywhere and thankfully i think i had like in you know a good first issue that captured people's imagination so it's like all of those pieces uh sort of sort of came together uh but but 
for the first writing the first arc of something that's killing the children was a sort of act of discovery now i have a much more like i've built out the you know the mythology and i understand the mythology now you know i still throw myself throw a wrench in for myself every now and then to be like what if i do this cool thing that changes this element uh but you know one like a lot of that sort of came came fully formed um like it as i was doing it it was uh which is strange i've never really had that process before where this the story kind of dictates itself um but now i'm following a plan and i know where it's all going and yada 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 yeah so i didn't want to imply that you're just making this up as you go <laughs> i really, really didn't want that to come across um but, I, I but am. <laughs> yeah but when i when i equate it to which is it's the the sense of um the monsters uh, that are involved um there is they're physical um there's a, yeah. a, a there's a tangible there's a there's a physics and however fantastical it may be um there's a, a physics to the whole thing and I think that's something that started to become more to the fore in horror comics and indeed horror as a genre. Um, relatively recently, I think, it's something that has, oh, it's, it's become the, the, the prevalent um, approach to horror in that nowadays we kind of know what horror looks like. We, we see it when we turn on uh, the news. We, we read it on a day-to-day -day basis. So we have a, a, a tangible sense of what horror is. Yeah. In our, in our fiction, we're kind of, that's kind of spilling into a different set of rules, but there's a definite, ta it's not so much the shadow in the corner. There's a, you get the sense of the shape of the shadow. You get the sense of there's a physicality there and it's a real physical threat. Um, right. Does that make, does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. No, and that's and honestly that it, like the the core conceit in something who's killing the children is it's basically taking all of that abstract horror and creating a shadow mount monster out of it. Like it is, you know, uh, but it, you know, and I think that the, drawing a through line from me to uh, you know witches, and then from witches you can go from Scott to Stephen King. Like that Very is so. there yeah. is always a. Like, even when Stephen King goes uh, abstract, he always grounds his horror in a very real world. Um, and with with very human characters that make even the the strangest, you know, pieces of mythology he's played with, like, you know, they, they still feel, like, guttural and real. And I think that that is a, that is a huge influence on both Scott and myself. And it is, you know, I think we play, Scott and I kind of, uh, you know, we have, obviously we've worked together for so long. We have, we have certain, there are traits to what we enjoy in horror that, that are aligned. And I think sort of the core message of both are a little different. I think that my, my horror stories tend to be a lot more about how, you know, like I, I am someone who's always been skeptical of systems and organizations and like all of that. And that's part of why, you know, in something is killing the children, the order of monster hunters that Erica is a part of, they are not like just good guys. They are kind of a like corrupt and stagnant organization that Erica is going off on her own uh, to fight. And I think that that's, that reflects something like, you know, real in the world. Um, but it is something about wanting there you need to you know 
Like, if you're going to stick a knife in someone, like, <laughs> to make them feel something with horror, like, you want there to be teeth in the knife. You want them yeah. to have something to grip it, <laughs> it to grip onto. Um, you know, and I think that going at it through, you know, camp or going at it through, uh, you know, something a little more heightened and stylized, it loses... Uh, the fact that horror is real and a real emotion that people feel in their day-to-day lives and horror fiction is like serves a purpose in unpacking that feeling. Um, And so it's just like, you know, like I love the more aesthetic horrors and the, like the goofy horrors and the campy horrors. I am, I am like all about all like I'm a, I'm a horror geek. So it's just like I've read and seen all of those things and will continue reading and seeing all of them. But it's something that I do when it's the sort of work I am drawn to is I want something that feels grounded with one foot in the modern world because the modern world is really freaking scary. And it's something that we need to start unpacking. Like we need to start unpacking all of the comfortable emotions of today in our fiction. Like you know, we can't keep having, you know, our, all of our fiction can't just be echoes of stories that were 20, 30 years, like 60 years, hundred years old. Like we, we need new contemporary horror. I appreciate that. Uh, we've got Leanne D who's saying, um, I love how he changed the path of this story. And I think that's why I love the book. It's grounded in reality. Um, it's the last time I mentioned witches. Uh, the thing about that book is that um, it, it's definitely a story where the characters are falling into the, universe, the, the, the the world of witches and it's falling in that direction. You're falling into the tree, you're falling into the woods, that regard. Yeah. With um, Department of Truth and with um, uh, Something is Killing the Children, from the way I've I kind of been equating it is, you know that meme that went around where there was um, a, a, a werewolf uh, kind of... Uh, image coming up the stairs towards you and you could see the werewolf coming at you and the reaction is what how would you react and of course everyone's reaction is well I'd shit myself clearly yeah um there's but it's a, a physical thing that is coming towards you it's spilling out into the into the world and it's affecting the the, the crowd and the the characters that you have in in your uh, in in the the books so it's it's a different direction of the horror that um, i i see in the books and i think that's the certainly with department of truth i mean you're talking there about uh, something is killing the children about the uh, the tangible uh, horror the the tangible monsters with department of truth you can go pretty much bloody everywhere uh, this is where <laughs> it gets slightly awkward uh, to talk about this and i i know that we're now currently talking to uh, the the patreon audience uh, so it's a slightly smaller audience which is great because at least then i can be a little bit more open about department of truth because it's very difficult to discuss this story yeah. without spoiling it it's a a son of a bitch to talk about uh, because um <laughs> and i and i will say i am trying to keep that last page intact for for the readers uh trust uh, me i i mean i've got i've got a couple of uh, screen caps and trust me they are nowhere near the back end of the book <laughs> oh trust me yeah. um if we can uh, we will talk very quickly about department truth can you give well can you give that one sentence um first page pitch just so i don't ruin it 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, honestly, it's... Because uh, I don't even the, know if I, I can mention the character that's in the first section of the book. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, the... Like, I mean, I think what we can say is that this... Uh, this is a book about conspiracy theories. And this is a book in which there is an... Like, this book exists in a world where uh, the... You know, the more people believe in something, the more true that becomes. So when you so when there's a dangerous conspiracy theory growing, it is more dangerous in this world, this world, because if enough people believe in it, it starts to manifest in reality. And then when once it's manifest, like it can become the new truth. And then when that becomes the truth, it changes everything retroactively to make that true. Uh, so there's a, the big example that that's played out in the first issue is the is flat Earth uh, and how that's connected to you know the moon landing and all of that stuff and basically the idea uh, that you know if all of a sudden if they were there was proof that we lived on a flat Earth it's not only that it wouldn't just be like oh man like everyone's been lying to us that it's a flat Earth it's the like, think of how deep those lies would be. It would be every world government would have been lying to its people for ages. Every airline would have been lying to people about, like, the direction planes go. The entire space program would be fiction. And it's one of those things where it's just, like, when you have... It creates this level of menace and this level uh, of all of that, that then all of a sudden, like, society would become, like, wildly more unstable and all of that. When you know that, like you know, changes of that that scale have happened. So, like that's kind of the core pieces. But the, I would say that the the big thing with the Department of Truth is I wanted to play with the real conspiracy theories here. Like I'm not looking, like we're not looking to create. Like so far in writing this book, I have not created a conspiracy theory. I am using ones that exist in the real world. Sometimes it's a slightly fictional variant on on a real world one. Like issue two uh, deals with a case similar to uh, the McMartin preschool trial back during the satanic panic of the 1980s. Right. Uh, but I don't actually use like the McMartin preschool trial uh, because I didn't want to sort of twist that for my own means. Uh, because I mean that honestly, one of the most difficult things in this book is trying. Like I, I'm playing with some. I'm playing with some fire here, and I need to respect the fire, and I need to make sure that I, you know, don't <laughs> let it go uh, no, untended. I mean, certainly, when it comes to the conspiracy theory, I mean, yeah, I was thinking about this about the conspiracy theories uh, in future episodes and uh, future issues going forward. And certainly for the biggest one for the last decade, uh, two decades, is 9-11. Uh, yeah. I'm guessing that gets um, touched on at some point. At some point, the, that'll definitely get touched on. And, uh, you know, because, I mean, I remember, uh, honestly, like, when I was in uh, early high school, it's when there was this video that was going around online called Loose Change. Um, and, you know, it, it made a very compelling argument, uh, which was, which then like, literally I was getting, I was getting a little swept up in it because it was just like, I watched it and then I bought the like nine ninety nine DVD of it. And I would like show it to some of my friends and it literally took my dad, like who s finally saw that I had it and understood what it was. And he like sat me down and was just like, 
for one, you know, I have uh, one of my aunt's brothers, uh, you know, not blood related, but, uh, you know, extended in the family passed away in, in the 9-11 attack because we have, I have tons of family here in New York. And it's just like and it was one of those things where it's like, you know, there there is a line between, you know, questioning the government and questioning like what their motives are and all of that. And that like, you know, you need to question authority. And then there is the line where you're you're dealing in fantasy uh, that that hurts people. And like he laid that out to me very clearly. So it's like that one in particularly I, I do like I will, you know, we'll be getting to it down the road. But in the, the first three ish, issues, like the first one deals with flatter. The second one deals with the satanic panic of the 80s, which sets up some stuff which, you know, there's elements of the satanic panic that you can see in the QAnon, uh, you know, conspiracy and all of that. There it is. Um, That's, there's the word. <laughs> like, but it is something that, like, you, so all of those things. And then uh, issue three deals with crisis actors and uh, false flag attacks. So it's something that it's like, because, you know, and, and that's sort of the my, you know, the gun issue. Um, but it's a, you know, like I'm going to some emotionally dark places here and I'm trying to, like, you know, unpack a bit of the humanity of those dark places. Not the humanity, like, that feels like the wrong way to put it. I want to unpack some of the uncomfortable feelings and the contradictions that can lead people to believe in these horrible things. Um, and then I want to create an organization that is like, you're not sure whether or not they are the good guys, because really what they're doing is they're, they are deciding what's true based on what is in the best interests of America. And that isn't necessarily the best like, gauge of what should be the truth of the world. And there's a larger history at play. I have like a deep mythology that I, I plan on getting into uh, that doesn't just touch on American history, but world history. Uh, you know, and we start getting into that in issue six, where we'll start to see how this goes back uh, all the way to, the, you know, the fall of Rome and before. And it's just like you can see like this is the, you know, I'm I'm really excited with that one, and I'll I'll be able to talk more about it soon. But it's it deals with the phantom time hypothesis, which is one of my favorite conspiracy theories, which is the idea that Charlemagne is an entirely fictional character that the Catholic Church created to basically, you know, the the fall of Rome was too recent, and so people saw uh, European society as being do, like uh, this collapse thing, while like you know this was the islamic golden age and all all of this stuff was happening where it's just like and then like all society seemed to be rotting up in europe and then all of a sudden it's like if we say that like basically two to three hundred years two to three hundred years further into the future from all of that then and then like it was around the creation of the holy roman empire and all of this where we can basically pretend that we are uh, you know and this has been wildly discredited. There is because you know the biggest the biggest sign is that uh, both uh, you know the from the the Islamic empires at the time, and then also uh, in China, there is history for those those missing years. So of course those years definitely happened. But it's a it's a fun uh, conspiracy to, to play with. This is, okay. This is the reason why I've been so excited about this book. <laughs> there's, there's so much stuff going on in this book. 
Um, I mean, we've got uh, Leandy saying, if Department of Truth is as good as something, as something is killing the children, then I'll be grabbing that. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> it's, it's. It, I mean, the, the, the level and the levels that this can go into is it over the course of uh, this. I mean, certainly the first issue which I've read it is absolutely stunning. Um, and certainly the feeling that I had was, I mean, I think I, I don't know if it was the same video, but certainly the, the 9-11 videos when I, myself, I started falling down a bit of a rabbit hole of believing some of these videos and wondering and questioning. But then I almost had to have, I mean, I, I didn't have somebody like my father to pull me back. I had to kind of pull myself back from the, yeah. the brink and there's a real sense of that in this book that there's <laughs> there's this like you say in an organization that will pull you back from the brink but why and how and it's, yeah. it's a, a phenomenal stuff um you mentioned QAnon um and QAnon sorry and you don't mention or reference them by name uh, in the book as far as i remember but uh we are at a time now when even in the last week or so we have seen a mammoth amount of people flocking to this conspiracy theory and willing it into existence. And that's yeah. why reading this book at this time, it was almost one of those kind of like, okay, is the matrix glitching kind of things. It was a, li a little bit too <laughs> convergent uh, when, yeah. I, when I read um, um, uh, Department of Truth. The other thing that I want to put to you then is for yourself and for your own not protection as such, but knowing that QAnon has this much sway at the moment. Um, and this is a book about political oversight, as it were, of conspiracy theory. Um, in which point QAnon has got that influence. Do you sometimes, or have you been uh, kind of safeguarding yourself against any kind of comeback against that particular bunch? Um, I mean, I think that this is something that the the way I it, it, was, it was a messy way for me to ask the question. I'm sorry about that. No, no, no. It, it like it's a difficult question, and it's one that I need to be asking myself. Um, but it is something that I think the there the benefit of what I'm I'm doing here in the series is that it allows me to kind of. Uh, split a difference in an interesting way where the core conceit is so high fantasy like fantastic and it's one of those things where it's like you know the idea of a like a, a wholly subjective reality that can you know reshape based on belief is is a like high sci-fi concept you know of, you know of the first degree so it's one of those things that i know that as I'm approaching all of this through fiction, like the thing that would make me uncomfortable is I don't want to be ever purport to be saying that like I am writing the true history of the world. <laughs> like it's one of those things because there are real conspiracy theories. There are real, uh, you know, and there are things that are conspiratorial, like, you know, like it's one of those things where, and this is something that I want to touch on at, at some point. There are the things that have been that are taught as conspiracy theories and then we learn are like functionally true, including a lot of what like America and the CIA did in the 1980s. And it's just like, you know, it is something that, you know, those tend not to be the most like, 
you know, salacious ones in terms of involving aliens or things like that. But it is something that there is, a, you know, there, like, there are, there are true secret histories to the world, and this book is not designed to approach them. It is about the way that we play with these symbols over and over and over again, which is the fact that QAnon is effectively the same thing as the Satanic Panic, which is essentially the same thing as a number of predecessor, uh, you know, beliefs of you know the the idea of like of like certain people like eating babies and stuff like that, and it's like it ties into the mythology of witches. It ties into the mythology of like it's one of it's such a core fear that is probably more animalistic than anything. Where it's just like we are afraid that some other is going to like steal and eat our children. And it's just like there is something so base about that that is returned as a symbol time and time again over history. And so it's something that it's like all of that I find incredible, like incredibly interesting to play with. But it is something that it's like I am playing with it in fiction and I'm dealing with it in fiction. The version of, you know, and. And honestly, one of the things that I think sort of safeguards what, like, because I I do intend. It's, on, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's not stop them in the past. That's the problem. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. You know, but it's like part of how, like, the the way I want to approach the the concept of Q in the story is is safeguarded with a few rungs of fiction that, uh, like, extra like makes it part of the core mythology of the. The fictional universe I'm creating rather than tapping into like what's happening on the streets today so it's one of those things that like you know hopefully that plays with it but we'll see uh I do have a feeling I'm gonna you know like uh have some some interesting email friends who are gonna start popping feel, up uh yeah I, I just feel that, that, eye, that eye of Sauron just kind of swinging around uh that's that's the that's the fear uh I mean the, I'm curious as to see whether it's going to touch on various other conspiracy theories uh, down the line. Um, I mean, the moment I see the word, uh, it's on, I don't know how likely it is for you to put it into your script, but the moment I see Scientology showing up, uh, that's when you're really going to start touching blue uh, touch paper and... <laughs> Uh, that's when things really start getting interesting in your emails. Um, oh yeah. Let, let's let's talk because uh, there's something that we haven't talked about when we have been discussing all of the uh, the project so far is your creative collaboration uh, with uh, artists yeah. and uh, people. Let's talk about Martin Sims on this book. This He's is, so good. This is this is career <laughs> best man. This is just absolutely staggering stuff. Um, yeah. How did you find out about him and? What did it take to persuade him to come on the book? I mean, when, so going back to, you know, 2018, this was when I was, uh, and I think I actually was having a uh, Facebook chat with, uh, you know, on my friend Matt Rosenberg at the time. And I was just like trying, I knew I had this idea and I knew that basically, like, you know, if I could create an artist out of thin air, uh, the person that I would want to draw this book is like some unholy combination of Bill Sienkiewicz and Dave McKean. Like, that's who I want to draw the book. Um, and and it was one thing where I think it was Matt who uh, pointed me in the direction of Martin, whose work I had seen before, 
Uh, like I, I'd seen it on like Frendo was coming out at that time and I had seen Punk's Not Dead and I, I really enjoyed his work. Uh, but some of that work was moving a bit more in almost a Phil Noto kind of direction. Uh, it was like it was a bit uh, there, there was a bit more of a, a, a digital edge to it and all of that. And uh, but looking at his Instagram, uh, he had done these Inktober pieces that were, uh, you know, w w black and white, very scritchy sketches of a bunch of musicians uh, for, you know, two years ago. And those were so incredible. And they had captured that kind the exact feel that was in my head. And so it's like it was seeing those pieces and it was reaching out to Martin and it was just like, what can I like, would you be willing to go like more down this road? Like, is this something like, is this peeling away from the way you want to move your, the direction you're moving your art? Or is this like the actual direction you want you to move your art in? And so we had that kind of conversation and thankfully he was much more interested in getting back into uh, something more physical. And he loved the idea of playing with, uh, you know, collage and all of these different uh, techniques that I feel like have kind of fallen by the wayside in uh, in mainstream comics, but especially in the, you know, especially in the this the specific period of the '80s and early '90s that I think we're both uh, both Martin and I are particularly drawn to, uh, were common in the works of Sinkevich and McKean, and like so, all of that kind of came together. Uh, to be like, okay, like Martin is absolutely the person for the job. Um, and so I, I was, uh, you know, like there wasn't another person I reached out to about art uh, <laughs> for this story. Like this is something that like the first, the first person was that I reached out to was Martin. And he <laughs> thankfully was very excited by the pitch and, uh, you know, and then, the, like, it's sort of, he had some work on his plate. It was going to be another year before he was available. And then my schedule became absolutely insane. And thankfully, he reached out to be like, hey, uh, I have this opportunity to do this book with Joe Hill at IDW. Uh, that basically gave me an extra, like, six to eight months to get the first issue together. And I was I was wondering how that, your time what your time frame was putting uh, Department of Truth together. Yeah, so it was about two years, and yeah. it was, uh, and that's pretty typical. Like, and honestly, I'm I'm starting to have conversations right now about books that probably won't come out until 2022 and 2023. Like, it's you know, there's always a long tail, especially when you're working with like someone as talented as Martin or some of the other artists I'm working working with to just like when is the schedule going to align um you know and especially for a project like this because this is you know this is a long form series like right now i have a rough sketch that'll take us through about 32 issues uh but the Whoa. but the but the thing is is that this is like part of how we're doing it is i would 20 of those 32 issues will be me and martin uh but the one of the things that you know, Martin and I agreed on, but to, you know, so there isn't like a four month gap between every single arc of this. Like I wanted to do the classic vertigo thing and bring in people for one shots that get to show different aspects of this world in between big arcs. So we've, we've lined up like a truly like knockout 
uh, lineup of uh, fill-ins between the first arc and the second arc uh, that will expand the mythology of the world. And then we'll come back for another big myth arc uh, piece with Martin. And then we'll do another interstitial. So it's like, that's part of the balance of what we're doing. And part of the goal there is to make sure that department of truth comes out in stores every single month, uh, which, you know, is a, is a thing that I'm trying to promise. And then I look at my schedule and then I cry <laughs> sometimes um, because I know I totally could have gotten away with the, the breaks, but I also know that those breaks mean that every time you take a break like that, people, uh, comic shops lower their orders and people like use that break as a chance to, switch over to collecting it in trade like having something that's a consistent like monthly comic book helps like it just absolutely does and uh that is that is part of my goal right now fair enough um if we can talk about uh, i mean i i, I want to talk to you about everything and everything for ages uh, trust yeah. me if i could if i could keep you on for hours i would do because i mean the 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 book. Okay, let's let's jump topic and let's uh, talk about wind uh, because this is another book which um, I, I know a lot of people talk about are talking about um, Joker War and uh, Batman and a lot of people are talking about uh, something is killing the children. This is a book for me which has just so much heart and so much, it's you it it bleeds the passion and the personal interest that you have onto every page it's just um you, you can feel it in, in in the page it's just absolutely a, a stunning personal story to you clearly um if we could talk about wind <laughs> just any yeah. anything and where do you where, where the earth do you start no, it's, um in terms I of mean, mytholo mythology yeah. for this book then i mean was it about the two two-year ballpark for this as well or has this been, no. has this been has this been something that's really been percolating in your head yeah, no, this is uh, this is the book that I would, you know, when I was in high school, I would write a like I carried a binder around classroom to classroom. And when I wasn't paying attention to class, I would fill out that notebook with uh, ideas of the world of a serial and uh, the core cast and, uh, you know, mythology of the world of wind. And that was, you know, the like. I, you know, it's one of those things where I, I am so desperate to get my hands on those old, old notebooks at some point, because like, you know, at this point, they're kind of lost to time. But they that is the that was the genesis of this. And this is this is one of the oldest stories to me. Uh, and it's honestly stayed pretty true to uh, the story that I came up with when I was in high school. And all of these feelings were a lot more uh, present uh, for me. And, you know, it's, it is a world where I, you know, it, it's a world uh, where uh, the human race has kind of walled themselves off in a town called Pipe Town. Uh, and there are people with magical blood in the, world's around, uh, in the world around them. And they uh, are deathly afraid of, of magic and magic-blooded people. And the idea that... Uh, you know, because in this in this world, uh, magic leaves a mark on you, and it's like in the the if you go out into the world, the world changes you, and you might not be recognizable when you come home. And you know, the I think in describing it in those terms kind of gets right at the heart of the metaphor that I'm going with there, where it is something. This is the, you know, the 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 core idea of this book is that 
you know, the world changes all of us and resisting that change and being afraid of that change is against, uh, you know, human nature and, uh, you know, and, and you need to embrace it. And so that that's sort of the core idea. Uh, you know, it's a young cast of characters. It's me doing, you know, my, my YA series. Uh, you know, originally this was going to be three original graphic novels. Uh, the, that, that plan has changed a little bit. It'll be sort of three mini series uh, that, that run over the course of the next few years. Uh, that, you know, and each, like, each of those miniseries will be, like, five issues, 50-page issues, like, it's going to keep that, that format. Um, and honestly, I've just, this world has lived in my head for so long. And then, like, the second that I brought Michael on board, this was, you know, Michael was my and, and another creator of the woods. And another yeah. surname I can't get my head around either. Oh yeah, I don't even know that I know how to pronounce it. It's uh, the Alinas. Like it's one of those things that you kind of have to like the Alinas. Like just, just run at it. Mm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, like and uh, you know and like the D is a bit more of a TH, but yeah, no, it's uh, yeah. Anyway, but but yeah, this when I brought him on and we started like actually just defining the the visual aspects of the world and how to sort of keep it modern like what i was coming up with in high school was a lot more like traditional hard fantasy like and this is this world like is something that came out of our collaboration and wanting to do something that was a little more eclectic and strange and uh you know and i i think that that helps helps give it uh you know a bit more weight yeah, there's definitely that sense of, uh, I mean, the, the, while the, the world is very uh, fantastical, well, uh, it, uh, apart from the, uh, the metaphor uh, yeah. level, of course, um, but the, 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 the world that you've created is fantastical. The language is very contemporary. There's, uh, they, they, they talk like um, you would hear um, on a day-to-day -day basis. So there's that real sense of connection. Um, in that regard, uh, just as a to, to get yourself into the story, um, yeah, I find it I find it interesting that you are looking at the the longer arc and how it's um, evolving. Um, where can you talk about where you're thinking in terms of how far you want to expand the world of wind, the the various well the loca the locations and the character um, the the roster that you're looking at. Yeah, no, the like, honestly, I have a pretty concise plan through that, that'll take us through, you know, what I saw originally as the three graphic novels of Wind, like, and th those tell one story. And then, you know, if, if those books are successful, and I want to tell more stories in that world, they, you know, there are kernels for for those stories in everything that I was doing back in back in the day. But honestly, the these you know this is meant to kind of tell the full story of the character wind and his journey uh with his own identity and the character uh prince yorick like this whole core cast every each of them goes on will go on a very on a big journey um that that's really going to touch them and change them uh and you know put them into really frightening circumstances and you know and that's that's another thing that i wanted to you know, I, I call this a young adult book, and it's one of those things where I think a lot of uh, 
a lot of young adult books in the comic space are really middle grade books. Um, and, but this is something that I wanted, like, this is a story with death in it. This is a story where there's, you know, like it, there's some scary beats in this, but it is still meant for a, you know, like it, it's something that, you know, like I, I'm not supposed to be talking about this yet. I might be having some conversations about adapting this for other media. And, uh, you know, one thing that has been an interesting part of that conversation is like, how do I have the conversation of who is the core audience for this book? Uh, and the real thing is, is that the thing that I keep pointing at is like Avatar The Last Airbender is sort of the perfect model where it's something that has the light comedic moments, but then does not remotely shy away from the deep, powerful, emotional moments. And that is the core essence that uh, I want uh, Wind to have. And uh, that's the, that is also the thing that it's like, you know, if retailers are like, you know, how do I sell this book? Like, I can't sell this to the something is killing the children fan and all of that. So it's like, this is for fans of Avatar The Last Airbender. That's, that is what I'll, I'll say. Like, I think that, I think there's a nice one-to-one -one there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I was reading it, I definitely thought to myself, this could do very nicely as an animation series on, say, Netflix or Amazon Prime. It's definitely Fingers crossed. Fingers <laughs> crossed, absolutely. And I think the other um, story that um, I equate it to as well, uh, in terms of the, just the sheer level of depth of, uh, of um, for, a, for a young adult, uh, for a YA book, uh, the, the level of conversation it brings up. Um, if you've read a book called Angelic, by uh, Sizeria. Oh, I, um, oh, yeah. I am familiar uh, with it. I have not read it, but the, you making that connection makes me uh, like I have to pick that up. I, I'd certainly point that in your direction because uh, there is that sense of a world that's being uh, created uh, to tell a story, but there's so much more going on. Um, and not only that, but it just looks absolutely gorgeous. It is, I mean, yeah, Michael's just done a stunning job on, on the work of, uh, of Wind. It's just a, a yeah. beautiful book to, to look at there. Um, I think what we'll do to wrap up and let you get on your way, because I've just looked at the time and realised how long we've been talking. <laughs> um, considering that, yeah, I said I was going to try and keep these shows to an hour. That got blown out of the water. Um, the order I was going to talk to you, uh, about the books was Joker War, I was going to talk about Wind, I was going to talk about Department of Truth. The, the, I was going to leave um, Something is King of the Children to the end because that would dovetail nicely into this, Razor Blades. Now, oh, yeah. this is interesting um, because the the one commonality of the, the creators that I've been talking to over the course, course of the summer is with the way that uh, the comics industry has felt fractured and that things could change on a dime. Creators have felt that they need to make a more direct connection with their audience and that they need to do it in a way that they have some form of editorial control and control of release. And the way that they've done that is through crowdfunding and various other alternative methods. Razor Blades is an interesting one because it's a horror magazine. You, don't, you haven't seen many of those uh, kind of doing the rounds because people are wanting to try and get... A broad, as broad an audience as possible. So to focus in, why was it for you the need to go to focus on a, the horror genre when it comes to this particular project? Well, this goes back to one of my first, uh, you know, one of the first answers to one of the questions that you were asking, which was, what have I been reading? And uh, the From Hell, when I say that From Hell was one of the most important things that I read uh, this, this year, the 
part of the reason that's true is that it led me to be like, you know, it's like, you know, it, it led me to like read up about how it was created. And I knew in the back of my head that it had started in a horror anthology, uh, a, a book called Taboo. And so I, oh, I thought I was going to be able to grab this faster than, <laughs> uh, no, they're, all right, I can't grab them right now. Uh, I was going to hopefully hold up an issue of Taboo right there. But uh, <laughs> honestly, one of the, so I, I basically, I went on eBay, like, w and I bought the full run of Taboo. And uh, they all showed up in the house. And the thing that really struck me about it was uh, a lot of what I was talking about before. It was the fact that in that uh, first issue, you have a story by Charles Burns, you have a piece, uh, an illustration by Clive Barker, uh, you have a piece by Alan Moore that not, like, it, he doesn't start, I think From Hell starts in issue two or three, yeah. uh, but it's the, like, you know, it, it was all of these different people who were, uh, you know, who were from all of the different corners of the comic book industry, which were, st which was starting to break off into those different corners right then where you had the, the black and white indie self-published uh, books you, and you had the, you know, uh, you know, companies like eclipse and things like that, where there, there was a kind of moment where there was a lot of different material flowing around, but it was, uh, it was sort of the re recognition that nowadays, like something like that is, uh, like it, it, you don't like question how strange it is, but it's like thinking of like imagine a world in which like the like Alan Moore starts doing a uh, like an in depth uh, you know account of the ki the Jack the Ripper killings with uh, someone from the indie alternative side of the comics industry. Like the writer of some of the biggest superhero comics of that moment, because this is like, you know, yes, he was doing like, you know, V for Vendetta uh, and like things like he was starting to make his mark in indie stuff. But at that point, like in the, you know, mid mid to late 80s, he was still primarily a superhero writer. Yeah. And it was just like and he went and he went and did something that like could only exist in a place could only have been incubated in a place like uh, taboo and it was just like this is interesting because it's an entire like you know where where are the corners of where are the platforms within the comic <laughs> book industry uh that ex that where the creators of the modern moment are kind of talking to each other and writing work not just like not just for like what's going to be the most successful ongoing, but is are kind of like in conversation with each other. Uh, and that was, that was sort of the, the kernel of that. And so I started talking to uh, my, uh, my editor on department of truth, uh, who is the former uh, Steve Fox, who used to edit, uh, used to be the um, comic book editor at paste magazine and paste magazine used to do these great write-ups of like the best horror movies, best horror books and all of that. And, uh, Steve was able to, uh, pull together, uh, you know, it, like he, like he and I like back and forth, we started talking about what we wanted this magazine to be. And we, uh, like, you know, and ultimately that that's what, uh, you know, that's what happened. And, 
this is the the proof of the the first issue uh that i have in hand uh but yeah we have like a lot of incredible creators and i reached out to uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of friends for the first one. And then we have a lot of people who were more long shots that I started reaching out to for issues two and three and four. Um, and it's just like we have people from all from the different corners of the comic book industry. And that was that was the, the real goal. Um, so honestly, it's a it's an experiment. It's an experiment. in it's also my first experiment in self-publishing. One thing that I, I didn't want to do was, uh, you know, like I, I, I have a lot of respect for the crowdfunding model, um, but I think that there was something, there's something in it that uh, doesn't appeal to me, which is the fact that when you, when you make the sale, uh, it's, you know, the, it's such delayed gratification. It can be six months to a year until you get something in hand. And I wanted, I wanted something that was immediate gratification. So we did it all in secret and announced it on the day that it was available online. Uh, and it was free. Like you could buy, pay what you want uh, online for, for the digital edition there. You could pay nothing if you want to. You can throw us a few dollars if you want to. And honestly, one of the most exciting things has been that, uh, you know, I made the crazy decision uh, right before launch that I was going to research how to do a print edition uh, and that we were going to do a limited run print edition of, of the first issue. Uh, and it was going to just be like, and it was an experiment. It was to see whether or not there was a demand and the print edition sold out in 45 minutes. Yeah. And uh, that uh, con basically... congratulations on blowing bleeding cool up on that one, by the way. <laughs> And honestly, that that proved to us right off the bat that it's like, okay, we need to sort of reconsider uh, how we are publishing this, where it's like, I always want there to be the digital first angle, because at its core, I want this to be something not only for comic fans, but also comic creators to sort of be able to be in conversation with each other. And I don't want a barrier to entry to be a part of that conversation. Um, but like there is a demand for physical the physical version of this and uh and that is incredibly cool and we're going to we're going to work towards that demand so there's going to be uh you know right now the like you know uh the the full print run of uh you know the first the first print run is sitting in my in my apartment right now in 11 boxes uh, I have a bunch of shipping material that's going to be arriving over the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to start sending them out in early September uh, to, to everyone who bought it. And then the, the time that I would say that everyone should be sort of keeping their eyes open uh, for news of how we're going to move forward with the whole Razorblades project is October, because obviously October is, you know, it's the horror. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, I think we're going to we're going to have some. Uh, like there, there's going to be some big announcements there, and we'll talk a bit about you know the sort the the really cool creators we've lined up for the project, um, and also how we plan on moving forward uh, with the print edition uh, through you know at least the first year of the project. So yeah, uh, you know, stay tuned. But it's uh, it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of work and it's uh, 
part of the only reason I was able to sort put any of this together is uh, because there haven't been conventions this year. This is well, basically, yeah. you know, the thing that I was able to do because like if I was supposed, I mean, I was supposed to be in uh, the UK three times this year and I didn't get to go once. Uh, I have a bunch of friends there. I have a bunch of friends internationally. I have a bunch of friends I only in the US I only ever see at comic conventions and it's just like this project allows me to continue to work with all of them and continue to chat with all of them and fire off emails <laughs> and it's like a lot of it is just an excuse to like there's this social aspect but it's a social aspect that you know is also going to pro produce a uh, horror comic book. So yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we brought up the, uh, the the creators. I put it up on screen there just to went to to roll through, um, and it is a staggering um, uh, roster of people. It uh, just to uh, to pull that together uh, is uh, something else. Um, when it comes to that uh, first print run, um, it launched. It dropped. Uh, I believe it was on a Thursday, and I know this because I was doing. I do hospital radio, uh, as many regular viewers of this will know. Um, and I basically was tweeting about razor blades and I was up for uh, getting my copy at which point I had to go to hospital radio and then came off hospital radio and found out he just it uh, yeah I, I, yeah I was I, I, I was gutted absolutely gutted so I'm glad to hear that there is a, a print edition on the way so uh, yes. yeah look, looking forward to that um, this would have been, like you say, the kind of uh, the project and most of the, the books we've been talking about, if not all, would have been something we would have been talking about at Comic-Cons. And it's, it's, it, that hurt when you turn around and said that you're going to be coming over to the UK a number of times. Um, when it comes to comic conventions down the line, what can you see for yourself? Uh, is it 2021? And how far into the year could you see yourself being comfortable about going to a comic convention again i mean a lot of it depends on the scale of the convention like i could see you know and it, it depends on so many factors like right now my the internal calendar in my head is like i don't believe like you know everything that in the first half of the year is purely hypothetical but i'm starting to be like okay second half of the year i'm gonna start like loosely sketching out plans in the back of my head like i am hoping that i do get to attend uh you know thought bubble 2021 uh that is uh, like that was one of the the trips i was going to be taking over um you know that and i was excited this year was going to be my first year at thought bubble uh but alas yes uh and it was going to be perfect, too, because it was going to give me a chance to see Martin right after the launch of Department of Truth and all of this stuff. Like, and see Michael uh, for the Wind, for, like, it was going to be the release of the Wind Collection. Uh, best laid plans. Indeed. Uh, but, but honestly, like, I, you know, the, I would say the early conventions of next year, I am, I'm going to be a little more skeptical of. I think it's more likely that I would uh, start to consider doing store signings before I'd start to consider, uh, you know, bigger things. And then, you know, I, I've also just been making sure that I can, like, you know, I've been doing more private signings uh, through Scott's Collectibles and stuff like that to just make sure that, you know, people who are who want their book signed can still have an outlet that they can get make that happen. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think uh, 
I mean, a couple of co- uh, creators I spoke to basically said, um, "You show me a vaccine, and then we'll start. Then we'll start talking." And yeah, I can kind, I can kind of understand that. But I mean, the reason why I wanted, I brought it up is purely because the uh, the timetable that you've, uh, the calendar you've put yourself together, uh, in the books that you've got coming out. Um, just, I, I often wonder about creatives uh, actually being able to make it to a comic con when they've got this much. Uh, on their plate and um you have got some incredible projects uh coming down for so many people in so many different um tiers and so many different audiences um you're covering quite the gamut and uh <laughs> it, it's, it's it's great to um to read the books um if because of the various styles that's one thing but it, the it's such a high quality and we're, we're just bloody enjoying reading your books it really is uh, amazing well um, i really appreciate it we're going to finish on this question. Uh, this is from Into the Blue Mister. We're going to need to... Oh, yeah, this is something he does regular, by the way. We're going to need to give James uh, to point out some of the art behind him so we can give him a nerd background rating. So I'm going to solo your uh, uh, right. image. If you can just sort of like go Here, through... Let me, your, your... let me close that for you first. <laughs> if, so you, if, you, if you need to cover the whiteboard as well. I don't know. Oh, no. The, honestly, the, everything on that whiteboard is like so out of date. His deadlines are like, you know, you can see the, the like, there's DC deadlines, boom deadlines, <laughs> image deadlines, and it's all blank. I haven't filled that out in ages. Um, oh. All right. So. I mean, I'm uh, loving the uh, Krypton, but we'll come back <laughs> to that. Wow. Go on. Oh, yeah. Um, so over to the left, and a bunch of these are ones that I, I got when I was going to conventions, uh, like right around when I started. Uh, like I, you know, I couldn't afford original art back then. So I would just acquire like prints that would, and then I would get them nicely framed to sort of spruce up my apartment and make me (laughs) seem fancier than I am. Um, but yeah, so I have, uh, there, they made a, there was a company and I forget what their name is and I, I'm sorry for that. Uh, but they were doing kind of, uh, Mondo style posters for different comic series for a while. So the, that top one is for the woods, um, directly beneath that. And then, uh, you know, sort of next to that and down are uh, two prints by Cliff Chang that he used to sell at conventions. Uh, basically, uh, an Electra co- uh, print that's in the style of the Flashdance album cover, and then uh, a Batgirl print in the style of the Purple Rain co- uh, I, cover. I, I know the Batgirl print, yeah. Yeah. Uh, directly above that was a print from uh, from 2010 uh, from Sean Murphy's uh, Wolverine alphabet, um, which, uh, yeah, that, that hasn't been around in the wild. Directly above that is an Annie Wu uh uh, Venture Brothers print uh, that I grabbed from her at a convention. Directly above is the um, is a so that so was I, 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 yeah I, I, I said Krypton. It's not obviously it's the, uh, the so, Fortress of Solitude. Exactly, and there's a little tiny uh, Superman flying out of the of the fortress. Uh, but that there there was supposed to be a whole line of like DC Comics landscape prints that. Uh, mondo was going to do but i think this is the only one that ever came out uh but i i I managed to get my hands on it and i'm very happy about that and then uh over here is the uh you know the good time sloth from memetic one of my series 
this was my my mom got me this one. Uh, so, uh, there was a USA Today. USA Today allows you to sort of get like you know uh, versions of prints of stories from their print editions and their digital editions. I don't think the story announcing Neon Talon actually ran in the print edition. I think it was only in the digital. But it's like that. My mom got me that, and it's. I keep thinking like this that's way what... too corny. I'm gonna like take it down, but it always goes back up when I shift offices. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is what no, this is what because you know damn well that mums will find out because this is what mums <laughs> this is what mums do. They 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 have a radar for this stuff. They exactly, know they, they exactly. know when the, that'll come down. Okay. <laughs> and then there's a uh, Kevin Wada um, a Pokemon print, and then right above that is. Uh, was a special print uh, for the Love is Love uh, comics anthology, uh, the the release party for it at uh, Golden Apple in January 2017. And so that's the Raphael Albuquerque uh, uh, piece from, from, from inside that. Wow. Um, but here, let me... Oh, while, while that, I'm showing... That looks uh, like, that looks like <laughs> um, Exhibit A in the murder trial. Was... <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and so this is uh, a piece of original art from uh, from Razor Blades uh, from from my partner Sam Johns and uh, Danny. Uh, like, and you can see Danny actually did embroidery on the physical, uh, you know, the physical nice. art pages. Uh, here's one that I just got. I got a page from Gary Frank from uh, the. Uh, Green Lantern 80th, uh, you know, a story I did about yeah. Alan Scott. Um, so I was very happy about that. And then I wanted to show off if I can. Yeah, there it is. For the person who asked about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, this is where you're now juggling. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But. So you can see, yeah, that's yeah. the that's the piece, and you can see like down here. This is all Freddie Williams, but then these four, are the you know, that's actual Kevin Eastman art. Uh, and then he sent me this nice nice note along with it. So this Beautiful. all needs to get get framed uh, and quick. And then there's a bunch of other original art that I need to get framed right there, but it's. Uh, our, my my art wall full of original art is out in the living room, but uh, you know the, the it's not you know the apartment's a, like a little bit in disarray. So I I will that'll have to be another time. <laughs> How much does your partner get to choose what goes up on the walls as well? Oh, I mean, like definitely. <laughs> you know, we're the benefit is we're both like comics people, so we're yeah. like. You know, our, our tastes sort of go between the different corners, but it's like it, what we want is something like that is both classy and geeky all at the same time. So, uh, you know, like we, we we come to a happy medium. Fair enough. Uh, fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. I'm certainly into the blue, Mr. I mean, like myself, was, uh, with a huge grin on my face looking at that little lot. That was incredible. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yeah. But listen, I wanted to say thank you very much indeed for coming on and joining uh, and talking to us for a couple of hours uh, about the, your projects. I mean, it's like I said, I could carry on going because there's just so much stuff that you've got going on. 
but there's like i say there's so much layers to the stuff that you're doing and it's just a joy to unpeel it unpack it and uh, enjoy it um and if i haven't said it enough already everybody watching department of truth get that book in your pull list get it um ordered because you do not want to sleep on this book. Um, it's one hell of a ride, and I'm look. I really am looking forward to seeing where it goes. If anything, I'm just looking also just to seeing what else Martin Simmons comes oh, yeah. up with. Up with because it's like I say, career best stuff. Absolutely gorgeous to see. Yeah, there we go. Right. So you've had your two hours breather. Um, back <laughs> back to work. Get back to uh, doing what you do, James. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for coming on. Um, Thanks for having me. Where is the best place for people to follow what you are doing um, in terms of books? Uh, is it your Twitter? Is it Instagram, Facebook? Where, where's the best place to point people? I would say Twitter. And while you're on my Twitter, if you follow the, the link right under that, you can subscribe to my newsletter uh, on Substack. And that is the, the best way to get, you know, all the news about what I am working on. Uh, I should have enough. This, this path past month has been a bit of a whirlwind so since the announcement of <laughs> razor blades i haven't put out uh i didn't put uh one out in august uh but there should be one coming in early september to sort of talk you know in in this next week to uh do the help help along the final push for uh uh for department of truth so uh stay tuned lots of lots of big exciting news to come excellent stuff James, again, thank you very much indeed for your company. And hopefully we'll see you at a convention uh, down the line. Yeah, let's get you over to the UK. Uh, let's, yeah. uh, let's see you over here, sir. Absolutely. Take care and enjoy the rest of your Sunday, sir. All right, you too. Have a good one. Take care. Thank you. Wow. Um, thank you very much indeed to James for that. Um, like I say, we usually try and keep this to a nice hour or so but that was certainly uh, something to, uh, to uh, a hell of a meal to dive into it was great to talk to him thank you very much indeed right um at this point i'm going to dial in with a couple of uh, um uh, stories when it comes to what's happening uh, when it comes to some conventions that are happening um, and also some updates so let's uh, very quickly cover those because obviously we have run way over time but let's uh, quickly uh, dive into uh, some stuff that is uh, uh, currently uh, on the cards um certainly with the the news about dc fandom which um uh, got uh, a lot of people's attention you you watched it you saw it you enjoyed it uh, and especially considering that we have heard word about just how many people enjoyed it 22 million people uh, over the course uh, sorry 220 million people over 20 was it 22 million people over 220 countries that was it um, we have ourselves the uh, the second part, which is going to be happening in two weeks' time. Twelve days to go, or just under thirteen days to go. Uh, we have ourselves all the updates uh, when it comes to the uh, the schedule and all the various individual rooms that we've got coming. Yes, they're going to be happening. Watchverse, Insiderverse, Uverse, Hall of Heroes, Funverse, and Kidverse. Um, we have yet to find out exactly what's happening with Hall of Heroes, or whether it's just going to be yeah, it's just going to be a straightforward replay of uh, what we saw uh, on the uh, the, uh, the August uh, thing, but uh, yet to find out exactly how that's going to play out. But uh, so many people watching that uh, stream, and um, it kind of put everything I said into a little bit of a cocked hat. I turned around and said that I wasn't convinced by uh, DC Fandom. I felt it was far too passive, uh, that it was effectively just a live stream. Someone hit play, and for 24 hours, um, it just went out live. Um, 
I felt that there was no direct con uh, correlation. I didn't feel there was a connection with an audience. And it speaks volumes that I've been seeing like live streams with Kevin Smith and Mark Bernard and turning around saying, this could be the future of what we see with uh, uh, DC uh, going forward. And indeed, other companies could take the DC Fando model and roll with it. I really sincerely hope that they don't. They, there needs to be more dialogue. There needs to be a, a real live connection with uh, their audience. And um, in this regard, we'll see how that goes with the second run. We'll see what happens in two weeks time, because at the end of the day, I'm hoping that they adapt, they evolve, and they have more of a live interaction. Otherwise, for me, it's a great info dump. And it was great for 24 hours to see those trailers and have that conversation. But were any conversation that took about DC Fandom directly after on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it was about the trailers. It wasn't about the interaction. It wasn't about the actual event. Maybe I, it's safe to say I'm severely outvoted. It's me against 22 million people that watched that particular uh, effort. So that's DC Fandom. Um, the other uh, events that um, are being moving forward in a, a digital uh, nature, we've got WhoCon which um, has announced that they are going to be uh, moving to a digital event. Um, this is um, an event that would have been happening in San Diego um, relatively soon, actually, uh, over the course of uh, um, uh, in October. But it's been moved now to a digital format. It's, they have announced the dates for next year. Four Point Sheraton uh, for October 8th to the 10th, 2021. Uh, but they have announced that um, it is going to a virtual convention. Details on the way. Um, I think this is pretty much what we were going to be seeing from a lot of conventions down the line. Uh, there's just so many um, events that are going to be um, moving to the digital space, but they have to get it right for myself uh, to still create that um, sense of community. Um, and if there's one convention that needs that, it's uh, WhoCon, because uh, you cannot just put something up and uh, uh, it's not it's one of the most interactive um, events that I've seen out on the uh, in the circuit it is a full-blown community that comes to gather um, if anything while you have content at Hoopon that's not what people talk about they talk about the actual friends that they make the cosplayers they see it's it's going to be the kind of the, the sense of model about what you need to do for a virtual convention but there we go. Next up on my uh, agenda is uh, the uh, cancellation of Toy Fair New York, um, another convention um, which has uh, decided to postpone in the, uh, the landscape of uh, Corona and pandemic developments in Texas. Um, uh, the Toy Fair Dallas and Toy Fair New York postponed. Um, this is a big one uh, because while we talk about comics and we talk about Comic Cons uh, postponing, we still have to recognize that uh, it's still a, a small percentage of the entertainment market um, when a film festival cancels, when a game festival cancels or game convention cancels, when toy fair cancels. This is a big thing. Um, we're talking so much money. We're talking so much uh, investment in a marketplace which just um, goes all over. The fact that they are taking this to a virtual space this is going to be interesting because retailers like to have that tactile feel. They like to see what they're going to be selling and putting up on the shelves um, to actually then have to rely on a, um, a virtual space. Um, I can't quite see how it's going to work, but 
that's how uh, DC, uh, sorry, um, Toy Fair Dallas and Toy Fair New York have moved on and postponing both shows to 2021. Um, it kind of also speaks to what we can all enjoy uh, in terms of our own content. The things that we uh, get into, the toys um, that we buy and collectibles that we get. Could there be a, a big hole in that particular market purely because retailers can't get the uh, the sense of uh, the, the items that they would like to order? And uh, would that be a case of the big names stay on top and a lot of smaller um, retailers kind of get lost by the wayside because they haven't got the platform, they haven't got the um, the... Uh, stage to put their merchandise forward on which Toy Fair New York would afford them um, we'll see we, at the end of the day I think we'll all learn about the after effects of uh, of uh, pandemic and uh, corona not in 2020 we'll learn about the uh, general lay of the land way down the line and for, for next year okay um, other stories I want to very quickly touch on uh, we have ourselves uh, the Ringo Awards, uh, the Mike Ringo uh, Comic Book Industry Awards. The uh, nominations have gone out, and uh, now it is a case for the uh, uh, fans and pros to come together. If you want to go to RingoAwards.com and uh, basically uh, make stake your claim, put your flag in the ground, and uh, show your support of uh, some truly incredible uh, um, artists and writers and uh, creators. We have ourselves um, a whole bunch of people uh, that are represented, including the person we've just been speaking to, John, uh, John Tinnan, uh, the fifth, fourth, sorry, I always get that wrong. Something is Killing the Children is uh, um, nominated for Best Series for Boom Studios, uh, but um, I'm fully expecting his books to be more uh, represented next year because there's just so many that he's got uh, on the cards. But some incredible talents being represented in all, and all the, uh, the categories. Uh, so for the uh, the likes of Best Writer, Drew Edwards, Jeff Lemire, Mark Russell, Erica Schultz, Mariko Tamaki. The great thing about these particular awards are they really do show some uh, cracking representation of diversity of the creators. Uh, Best Artist, Artist or Penciler, Chris uh, Campnier, uh, Colin Doran, uh, Samford Green, Rosemary Valerio O'Connell, Mariana Percosta. It really does represent some incredible um, talents across the board. Uh, from the likes of uh, Spencer and Locke uh, for uh, uh, Action Lab, so you've got your smaller independent um, uh, uh, creators and uh, publishers, all the way up to, way up to uh, uh, your big boys, your DCs and your Dark Horses and uh, your Image Comics. So uh, yeah, uh, do go check the uh, the link out, ringoawards.com, because uh, it, uh, it allows you the chance to uh, support and uh, nominate and put forward uh, people who have been uh, exceptional in 2019-2020. Right, I think that's pretty much me, done and done. Um, as Dan Berry is saying, that was a long hour, wasn't it just? But um, there was so much to see and so much to talk about when it comes to James' work. Um, by Department of Truth, um, something tells me this is going to be one of the next great comics. Um, it's one of those that I think we're going to be talking about down the line. Um, we could, I didn't want to bring it up because uh, you could go conspiracy theory when it comes to religion, which, like I say, is your touch uh, blue paper. Um, yes, you have uh, the likes of uh, Christianity and uh, other uh, cults that uh, down the line. But uh, sorry, um, <laughs> sorry, that was me misspeak, misspeaking. I do apologize. Um, 
Scientology and other cults, but then you could also deal about the fact that uh, you could say that uh, Christianity is um, the greatest example of willing something into reality and something which will then um, shape um, and the landscape of culture and um, politics and every aspect of uh, life. It's one of the greatest um, examples of what De Department of Truth is all about. But then, uh, as James was talking about, the, the fact that uh, the Department of Truth itself is a government oversight. Um, and where does that uh, particular uh, power stop and lie? It's a fascinating book and I would, would heartily recommend you checking it out. Right. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. The sun has gone down. I'm now going to get myself something to eat. Uh, don't forget, this particular podcast, the audio version, will be going up on uh, SoundCloud tomorrow at uh, midday GMT, as soon as I've edited everything down. Um, I've also got ourselves uh, the, uh, the full replay of this video. will be going up on YouTube and Facebook uh, as of Wednesday for everybody else to watch. But for yourself that are watching this now, my Patreon supporters, I appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Spread the word. Let's uh, get more people involved watching this uh, on the Patreon page. Only costs two dollars, um, and I think uh, today you've definitely got you got your money's worth because this was a hell of a show. We've got ourselves uh, some great uh, talent that's going to be talking to us uh, shortly. Uh, let's see if I can uh, just bring this up. Uh, considering that. Um, I don't think I can. I don't know if if it'll come up. Bear with me a second. Let's see if I can find the uh, the uh, file I wanted to uh, show you. Because my word, have we got ourselves some great uh, guests coming up uh, very shortly indeed over the course of the coming uh, weeks and months. Yes, we are going to be talking to Scotty Young in November. That has been uh, on the cards for a while, and uh, yeah, very much looking forward to talking to him but here's the uh, the lineup as we are uh, for now so we spoke to james today we've got stephen mooney and declan shalby talking tomorrow uh, talking about um, their uh, kickstarter uh, stephen is the one that's actually created it declan's done the uh, backup story uh, inside it's two days to learn, to go on this uh, kickstarter uh, so do tune in uh, if anything uh, just so you can get a sense of what this uh, project's about and you never know it may be the uh, the show that kind of pushes them over the edge uh, Saturday, 5th of September, we've got our incidental episode with Mike Hawthorne. Don't know too much about him, so I'm looking forward to talking to him and uh, finding out more about his work. Cullen Bunn on Sunday, the 6th of September. Sunday, 13th, we've got Julie Tate uh, from the uh, Lakes Festival. Sunday, the 20th, we've got the That Texas Blood uh, creative team, Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips. And I'm really looking forward to Sunday, the 27th of September. Elsa Chatirier is going to be joining us. She is an incredible artist um, and I'm looking forward to hearing about her European perspective of pandemic and also her creative process. Some brilliant guests coming up and I'm looking forward to talking to one and all. Take care. Thank you very much indeed. Hope you've enjoyed the show for today. Um, it's been an epic one and I think it's been uh, a hell of a ride. Take care. See you tomorrow for our incidental episode of Talking Con, a cup of tea from Englishman Samuel. We'll see you soon.